I wanted Shantae to, to share that because um, so often in our lives, we, we can only focus on, on ourselves. We can only uh, look out for what's immediate to us. Sometimes those are very good things. Our own families, the Lord gives us that. Praise God for the gift of being able to, to care for those the Lord has given you naturally, or maybe it's put in your own family, but this dear sister cared for another sister in her church. And she didn't allow the distance in relation. She wasn't, Shantae wasn't her natural blood uh, to deter her. She didn't allow distance in age to deter her. Shantae was 16. This sister was in her 30s or 40s, right? Um, and so I think it's just a good model uh, for us of intentionality. We, we mean to be telling all our members, engage and invest in our young people. Engage and invest in our teenagers. Talk to them after service. Yes, they may not want to talk to you. That's totally fine. They need to talk to you. They need more reinforcements than this, just their parents. And it also just encourages us not to only focus on the immediate fruit or lack thereof we see. This sister dropped seeds 20 years ago. She hadn't talked to Shantae or seen Shantae in decades. And yet when she saw her or heard of her, her about her dad, uh, through her dad, she knew that the Lord had worked. And to hear Shantae's testimony of the Lord worked in her life through this other sister. Just it shows the, the impact that people can have on your life. The impact that you can have on other people's lives when you get out of yourself, right? When you humble yourself and don't live just for yourself, but look to live for others. I wonder even as you think this morning, what are some of the people, who are some of the people who have left an indelible mark on you? It wasn't the folks who gave you a lot of money, is it? It wasn't the folks who gave you a big break. It's the folks who showed some intentional care for you. Mom or grandma, another parent, an aunt, an uncle, a coach, a pastor. The Lord is kind to put people in our lives to call us to himself and to call us to copy their example for ourselves. That kind of ties into the passage we'll be looking at this morning in the book of Philippians as Paul points us to people to emulate. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me? To Philippians chapter 2. And this morning we'll close out chapter 2 of Philippians as we look at verses 19 through 30. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 981. Our basic practice here at Temple Hills Baptist Church is to open up a book of the Bible and to preach consecutively through that book until we're finished. That's not the only way to preach. We think that's one of the most faithful ways to preach so that we understand the flow of the text and we understand what God is meaning for us to say, uh, to, to, to realize and wants us to know as he says. And so we generally just work through books of the Bible, seeking to understand what the text says and how it applies to us. So Philippians chapter two, again, this morning we'll look at verses 19 through 30 together. Look with me as I read on. The Apostle Paul who writes says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with, him, with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly 
I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In this passage, at the most primary level, what we have is the Apostle Paul expressing the travel itinerary of two trusted associates. And at first glance, you might ask, why is this passage in the Bible? I mean, you can see its importance in its original audience and it's in its original context 2,000 years ago to the Philippian church. I mean, they needed to know that Timothy was coming to them soon and that Epaphroditus was coming to them even sooner. But what does any of this have to do with us? What benefit is this passage to us? I mean, you can look at these 12 verses and there's no explicit gospel for us to be encouraged by. There's no direct commands for us here 2,000 years later to follow. So why would God preserve this passage for 2,000 years as part of his holy scripture to instruct us? What are we to learn from this passage? Lord, I think we're to learn something of the heart of Christ from these two followers of Christ. How they behave is how we should behave. Another way to approach this passage is through the lens of what it looks like when the gospel gets down into your bones, when it truly transforms your heart and flows out through your actions. What does that look like? Well, Paul shows us here through these two models and makes the point that Christians who genuinely care and sacrificially care for other Christians should be both commended and copied. And that's the main point of our passage this morning. Christians who genuinely and sacrificially care for other Christians should be commended and their lives should be copied. Paul here commends to exemplary models of genuine and sacrificial care in this passage. So first we'll consider the example of Timothy. We see that in verses 19 through 24. And then secondly, the example of Epaphroditus. We see that in verses 25 through 30. Not the most clever sermon outline, but I pray that what it lacks in cleverness, it makes up for in clarity. You just look at this passage, 19 through 24, you see pretty clearly it's the example that Timothy has shown. And then in verses 25 through 30, the example of Epaphroditus. First, the example of Timothy. Look at verse 19. Uh, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be 
also cheered by news of you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And we see something of, of Paul's plans here. He plans to send Timothy to the Philippian church soon in, in due time. And notice how Paul even expresses his plans. Not with finality, as if his desires are the determinative factor, but as dependent on the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. He says something similar in verse 24. I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come. It's analogous to what the apostle James says in James chapter 4 verses 13 through 15. Uh, uh, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and we will spend a year there and trade and make a profit yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and do this uh, Paul like James and like the writer of many Proverbs understands that man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Paul hopes if the Lord wills to send Timothy. And look at the purpose of Timothy's visit at the end of verse 19. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. A part of Paul's purpose in writing this letter has been to provide the Philippians an update on himself. Uh, to update them on his status, to bring them news about what's going on in his life. I mean, look back at chapter 1, verse 12. The Philippians had already heard that Paul was in prison, but, but Paul writes to update them on his condition and, and what the Lord was doing through his circumstance. Paul says, I, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Uh, so that guards are hearing the gospel and so that other Christians are being more bold and being willing to share the gospel. Well, now Paul hopes to send Timothy to hear some news about them, especially in light of some of the instructions he's given them in this letter. I mean, he's instructed them to count others as more significant than themselves. He's instructed them to do all things without grumbling and disputing. As we'll read in a few weeks, he instructs them in chapter 4 to stop fighting against one another and to agree in the Lord. Paphroditus, who we'll talk about shortly, is sent more quickly than Timothy, probably carrying this letter to the Philippians. Timothy will hopefully be soon sent after him. And when Timothy gets there and returns back to Rome to Paul, notice what Paul expects. Good news. He expects to be cheered, to be encouraged by news about the Philippian church. Paul shows us here that he believes what he writes. He believes that God's spirit is at work inside God's people, producing in them the will and the work to obey his word. Paul believes the best about Christians. Uh, that's a marked difference from many today. It's become quite in vogue. It's become quite trendy to trash the church. The church will never do this. The church is full of that. To constantly condemn and criticize other Christians as being weak or woke or worldly and compromising. 
There's a kind of constant doom and gloom, pervasive pessimism from, per, per, uh, from, from a lot of P's there. Pervasive pessimism from per, professing Christians. Still didn't get that out. <laughs> That's what you get for trying to be clever. I said I ain't be clever in outline, trying to be clever with the words. All right? That's a pervasive pessimism from Christians. From Christians. About other Christians. About the church. It claims to pass itself off as authentic Christianity. Uh, Clear-eyed and uber-cautious. But friends, when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, when you read Philippians, here's what you find. There is an absolute acknowledgement of the depravity of humanity. There is a realistic understanding that Christians, genuine Christians, sin. But there is an absolute joy and wonder and certainty that Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins, from both the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And that by his spirit, Christians will be constantly putting off their sins and living lives that please the Lord and that please other Christians as we see each other positively responding to the reproofs of scripture and the loving rebukes of other brothers and sisters. So friends, if you're here and you tend to be the kind of Christian whose heart is, is kind of set on seeing all the flaws and all the faults with the church and being critical, I pray the Lord will use this text to reset your heart to see and believe the best about your brothers and sisters, to trust that the Lord is working to root out sin and to produce increasing godliness in his people. I pray that you would be cheerful, encouraged by what the Lord is doing and what the Lord will do. Friends, against what many social media posts and many blogs and many podcasts might convince you of, it is okay to be a happy Christian. It's okay to see the glass as half full, trusting that the Lord Jesus is filling up his people with his spirit and that the overflow of their lives will be righteousness. Maybe not perfect righteousness, but progressive righteousness. Paul plans to be happy when he hears what's going on in Philippi. He knows that Christians will respond the way Christians respond. And the fact that he sends Timothy means that Timothy shares Paul's mindset. But Timothy is not a man prone to, to look only at the negatives and allow those to form the whole narrative. You know, that's the, the way some of us view our jobs, our marriages, our church. A few things going wrong and, and, and we think that the whole thing is rotten. And, and then make these comprehensive claims that my job is horrible. My marriage is terrible. Don't nobody in this church love the Lord or love me. No, Paul sends to Philippi a man who's, who's tempered, who's measured, who's filled with grace and looking for evidences of God's grace among the people. Upon Timothy, Paul showers this high praise in verse 20. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. 
Timothy is the most like-minded man that Paul knows. He's his right-hand man, his road dog. Right? I don't, I don't want to go do ministry if Timothy ain't with me. And again, pay attention to why Paul so highly values him. It's not because Timothy is Paul's yes man. It's not because Timothy just serves Paul as his habitual flunky. No, it's because of how deeply and genuinely and sincerely concerned Timothy is for other Christians, for, for you, for the Philippians. Now, Timothy accompanied Paul on his initial visit to Philippi 10 years prior when Paul first preached the gospel to them and when the Philippians first believed the gospel. His heart was for this body of believers. He wanted them not only to be saved, that wasn't enough for Timothy. If so, he would have dropped them from his heart, from his thoughts the moment they were converted. No, he wanted them to grow in their salvation. He cared about their spiritual health and their progress. You know, Timothy is a, a living model of what Paul said earlier in chapter 2. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. To look not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We see here in verse 21, there are others, others who claim to know Jesus, who claim to be believers, but who seek only their own interests, not those of Jesus. They likely include those that Paul talked about earlier in chapter one, who proclaim Christ, but out of the wrong motives for personal gain, for a personal platform. Now notice how expansive this group is. Now Paul says they all seek their own interests. He doesn't mean every single believer, but sadly it marks too many. But Timothy is not one of them. This man truly cared for other believers, cared how they were doing. He cared what their struggles were what their temptations and sins were, what they rejoiced about and what they needed help with. You know, Timothy's mindset and model is what we look for here in potential elder candidates. Not mere giftedness, but genuine care for the body. It really don't matter how well a man can preach. It doesn't matter how much theology he knows. The question is, how is he with the people before he gets a position? Right. Dear brothers here, there are a number of reasons, perhaps, that you are not an elder now here or may not be considered an elder now here. Many good and legitimate reasons. Perhaps it's a, it's a crazy season in your life. You need some, some margin right now. You don't have margin to serve. Or maybe you're new to the church or new as a Christian. But I wonder, is this one of the reasons as well? Because you're too self-absorbed. How often are you checking in on your brothers and sisters here? How often are you praying for them? Are you laboring to see them grow? Do you genuinely care for the body? But it's not just for pastors or potential pastors. I mean, Timothy wasn't one of the pastors of the Philippian church. Neither was he filling out an application to be one. But he was a Christian. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to care for and about other Christians. 
which involves diligent, attentive, selfless, humble service. I love that Paul puts a qualifier on Timothy's mindset. He's not just concerned for the Philippians. He's genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare. Many of, many of us at times often posture concern for others. Have you noticed that in yourself? Well, sadly, I have. You see another brother or sister's sin, and you express some grave concern about it. Or you see someone struggling to make friendship, struggling to make connections in the church, or someone straying from the church, and it concerns you. But what do you do about it? Uh, some of us mention it to others. We call out their sin. We point out their struggles. We voice the concern, inviting others to voice their concerns with us, creating a seeming echo chamber of concern, but with no commitment to actually care for those that we say we're so concerned about. If we are not careful, our concern can seem quite disingenuous in name only. We want and need and must model a genuine concern that not only sees what's wrong, not only sees what's lacking, but sets out to help and encourage folks. We want to care not just that folks might be in some kind of sin or struggle, but care enough to enter into their lives and help them get out of it. Remain with them in the midst of it to, to, to help shoulder some of their burdens. Isn't that the kind of, kind of care that Christ had for you and me? He saw the worst in us, our sin and our rebellion against him, and he cared for us. He was concerned for our welfare. And so he entered our world and took on our flesh. He lived up under our temptations yet without sin. And he died the death for us and rose again from the grave to save all of us who turn from our sin and trust in him. His concern wasn't just stated, it was shown. And so it is to be for us. So it was for Timothy. While others postured care, while others ministered for themselves, he ministered for the interests of others. He displayed genuine love and care for the saints. And everybody knew about it. Now see how Paul expresses that in verse 23. He tells the Philippians, you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a father with a son, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy has a long track record of service. He's proven himself to be a man of integrity and honor and others-oriented service for the sake of the gospel. The Philippians know Timothy as someone willing to serve under Paul like a son. Paul was his spiritual father in the faith, which I pray is just deeply encouraging for those of you who do not have children or who have children who are not Christians. The Lord gives you spiritual children. Praise God for that. Don't diminish or despise that. Praise God that he gives the gift of many spiritual children. In any case, it's important, Paul says, that the Philippians have seen how, how Timothy has served with them, has served under him. 
They've observed Timothy's life with Paul training him. Timothy was humble enough to, to learn from Paul. And he was faithful to stay with Paul, to stay loyal to Paul all these years through all the trials that gospel ministry has brought. And now with Paul in prison, he will send Timothy, but won't come himself. And yet the Philippians can totally trust Timothy because of the life of humility he's already shown. And I think it makes the important point that being a faithful servant qualifies you for future service. Being a faithful servant now qualifies you for future service later. I mean, many people desire status without first demonstrating service. And many people demand respect without first displaying respectability. But Timothy has proven his worth through years and strains and toils and trials. He's labored with and under Paul and loved the saints. So that now with new trials, what can they expect of Timothy? Well, the same that he's already shown. Laboring with them and loving them no matter what comes because that's who he is. Saints, here's a reason to stay in one church for a long time. You know, we all want a church where people will genuinely care for each other and look out for each other and trust each other. But friends, that kind of culture is built over time. It does not happen overnight. It comes as folks get to know you, get to know and trust your character, get to see your life over time. One of the gifts of being a church member for years is getting to prove the genuineness of your faith over years as you bear up under trials and as you show your love for the saints the Lord has put with you. Some of us will be here in this local church for decades, perhaps until the rest of our lives. That is not a wasted life. The world looks at that kind of person as a loser. You stayed in the same place all them years? Yes, that's good work. Praise God for that. Others of us might only be here for one or two or three years for different reasons. But however long the Lord has you here, commit to being invested and involved in each other's lives. If you want a healthier church, be a healthier Christian. Understand that you can be a part of building and reinforcing a culture here of deep others-oriented care and love. You can see why. Timothy was so valued by Paul and so valuable to the ministry of the gospel among other churches. His focus was always on seeing others thrive. In sending Timothy, Paul was sending his very best, which is why Paul says in verse 23 uh, that he's not quite ready to part with Timothy yet. He said, I'm going to come to you soon. He will come to you soon, uh, just as soon as I see what will happen to me. Just as soon as, as Paul's trial is, is worked out and Paul sees what his fate is, he could use Timothy's help a little longer. But even then, Paul models what he commends Timothy for, a focus on others more than on self. 
He won't hold Timothy forever. He will be sent. And Paul says in verse 24, he hopes to come to the Philippians again himself. What purpose? To care for the body, to care for the church. Because that's what Christians do. Care for the church. Timothy, Paul says, is a good model in that manner to follow. As is Epaphroditus, who we learn about in verses 25 through 30. Point number two in this passage, we see the example of Epaphroditus. Who is Epaphroditus? We learn in verse 25. First, we learn that Epaphroditus is Paul's brother by blood. By the blood of Christ, that is. He's been saved just as Paul has been saved. He's been brought from death to life, just as Paul has been brought from death to life. You, you see, there are no naturally born brothers and sisters in Christ. There are no naturally born Christians, but there are a lot of supernaturally born Christians. And saints, to be a Christian, to be someone supernaturally born, is to be someone bound up in a supernatural spiritual family. Adopted by God, our father, by and through the sacrificial death of his beloved son. Oh, we do well to remember that. Perhaps our failure to remember that is what leads to conflicts. Or what adds to the lack of connection or affection. These are not just people that you happen to be cool with. These are not just folks that you happen to see once a week on Sundays and have to endure for a couple of hours. These are your brothers and sisters whom the Lord Jesus loved and died to save. And as we sang earlier, we are to love with the love of the Lord. Paphroditus is Paul's brother. He, he's also Paul's fellow worker. Epaphroditus is not someone who sees salvation as fire insurance policy from hell. He doesn't just sit on his salvation and say, I'm good now. No, he's someone who does as Paul urged in our passage last week. He works out his salvation with fear and trembling. He works as Paul works to see others saved and to see others maturing in their faith. And Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier. It reminds us that there is real spiritual warfare going on 24-7 in our lives. And Epaphroditus is engaged in the same conflict with Paul. They are on the same side, fighting, warring against the world and the flesh and the devil for the sake of the Lord. Paul praises Epaphroditus for his faithful labor and service. And places him on the same plane as himself. Not beneath him, but a co-worker. A fellow soldier. Yes, the great Paul is the one we know. It's his name that, that rings out in all the churches and in all the, the Christian circles. He is the apostle with the dramatic conversion experience. And with the daring missionary journeys. But see here how Paul exalts a largely unknown Christian and boast of his faithful commitment and courage. Paul probably needs to make this point because of who Epaphroditus is to the Philippians. Look there at the end of verse 25. He's their messenger and minister to Paul's needs. 
Epaphroditus was a native Philippian and a member of the Philippian church. He'd been sent by them to provide a financial gift for Paul and to care for his practical needs while Paul was in church, uh, in prison. I mean, turn one page over and, and look at chapter four, verse 18. Uh, Paul says in chapter four, verse 18, I, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. But now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. But it's not because of some moral failure. It's not because of some lackluster service or some argumentative attitude that Paul just couldn't deal with. No, he's sending him back, but he sends him back with warm affection and with high praise. He's still my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. It's not that Epaphroditus has failed in any way. That's the reason for his return. No, Paul says, I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus back because, verse 26, he's been longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was ill. And it wasn't just some stomachache or minor cold. It was a severe sickness. Paul says at the beginning of verse 27, so severe that he was near to death. We, we don't know exactly what the sickness was. But even in the midst of it, notice where Paul says Epaphroditus' heart was. Back home. Back with the saints. He was more concerned about their anxiety, about their fears about his fate, than he was about facing the sickness himself. He'd been near death, but was thinking about what would be life-giving to them. It's a model Paul himself has shown with this letter. Paul is in prison in Rome with a death sentence hanging over his head, but his heart is with the Philippians. And so even as his life is being threatened, he writes a letter to them. It's a model Jesus Christ has shown. While he was not just near death, but actually on the cross dying. His heart was on us. Father, forgive them, he prayed, even as he writhed in pain on that rugged cross. Like them, Epaphroditus cares for the church more than just himself. He is yet another example of putting others and their interests above your own. It's a model that we need to match. I mean, where does your heart naturally go when you're going through something hard? Whether it's sickness or some other form of, of suffering. Often we, we turn inward, we become self-focused. We make ourselves the center of attention and call others to care for me, to cater to my needs. But what a remarkable thing. When in our worst pains and problems, we turn and care about others and how they are feeling, how others are relating, how others are doing and what they most need. I thank God for how you all as a congregation are modeling that. How many of you are going through some deep, deep struggles physically. How many of you are going through some deep 
wrestles and issues with mental illness. How many of you are, are dealing and struggling with some deep hurts in your relationships? And it would be really easy to tap out and focus on yourself. I mean, that's what con conventional wisdom tells us. Prioritize self-care. But while self-care has its place, others' care ought to be most prominent in the life of a Christian. And I love how so many of you are not living in habitual self-pity and seeking others to be pitiful of you, to pity you, but are instead in your pains and problems seeing how you can be a platform to help other brothers and sisters. I think of three of our sisters last week after church, all three dealing with significant health problems, but not going back to their homes and crying, woe is me, but going out together to see how they can encourage each other to keep trusting in the Lord, sister, and to trust that the Lord is for you and with you, and so am I. Saints, keep doing that. Keep modeling that kind of empathy for others, even as you endure hardships and pain. Emulate Epaphroditus in that manner. Epaphroditus' situation was severe. He was ill, near death. But Paul says in verse 27, God had mercy on him. He fully recovered. And not only did God have mercy on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Uh, friends, we see here the proper theocentric perspective when you are healed of something. It does not mean that we should dismiss or neglect medications or doctors. Those are gifts from the Lord and often the means that he uses to work in our lives. But whenever you come out on the other side of something, this is the ultimate five-word reason. God had mercy on me. Whatever the situation is, whatever means you did or took to alleviate that situation, whatever means that were helpful in that situation, when you come out on the other side, it's only because of these five words that God had mercy on me. Amen. You see, one of the things the Bible means to teach us, even in seemingly obscure passages about unknown people getting healed, is the absolute sovereignty of God. All of scripture in that way is out to heal all of us of the natural born sickness of self-importance and to send our focus first on the Lord. From Genesis 1-1, we see God's sovereignty over the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To Philippians 1-6, we see God's sovereignty over salvation. He began a good work in you. To Philippians 2-13, we see God's sovereignty over sanctification. He is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here in Philippians 2.27, we see God's sovereignty even over sickness. How did Epaphroditus recover? God. He had mercy. It's an important thing to note. Because while so much of the book of Philippians has called us to care not only for ourselves, but for others, seeking their interests, that is not a direct step that we can make. You don't jump from self-focus to others' focus. You first need a God focus. 
to see him as bigger than you, to see him as over you, to see his work for and in you. You see, our inflated view of self only shrinks in the face of a big and sovereign God. Only shrinks as we see ourselves in proper relation to him, under him, and then able and willing to serve and care for other people under him. But it does beg the question, doesn't it? If God is so big and so sovereign that he had the power to heal Epaphroditus, then he also had the power to prevent Epaphroditus from getting sick in the first place. Why did God allow this man to get so sick, even when he was serving him? Well, the answer is in the text, to show his mercy. You see, oftentimes, the darker the misery, the more deeply the mercy is displayed. You can't see God's mercy when you're living in the sun. But when God brings some dark trials and troubles into your life, oh, you see his mercy shining all the more brighter. And in the process, hearts are opened and filled with deeper appreciation and deeper affection. God ultimately healed Epaphroditus, but he used Epaphroditus' sickness to draw his heart deeper to the Philippians. So that Epaphroditus, in a newer and more profound way, longed for the Philippians. And he used Epaphroditus' sickness to draw the Philippians Hearts deeper to Epaphroditus, they lamented over their beloved server, service in service with Paul. And he drew all their hearts, Epaphroditus and the Philippians and Paul's, deeper to the Lord in love and in gratitude for him. And Paul says, God had mercy on me too in healing Epaphroditus, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul was in prison and he was making the most out of his, his stay evangelizing the guards. But don't get it twisted. It's not where he wanted to be. It was not a pleasant situation. There was some sorrow in Paul's heart over his present predicament. And Epaphroditus dying, this dear brother who'd come to help him and to care for him in prison would have devastated him. It would have multiplied his sorrow. I appreciate how, how Paul puts his heart on his sleeve. He is not some spiritual stoic, and neither should we be. Yes, Paul knows that God is in control. Yes, Paul knows that for a Christian to die is gain. Oh, but death brings pain and sorrow and sadness. And saints, it is okay to feel and admit that. Please do not feel the need to minimize the effects that suffering and death have. Please don't feel like you need to adorn death with religious jargon. That does not make us sound more spiritual. It makes us seem less human. Sickness and death cause grief. It's okay to acknowledge that and to express that. But God, Paul says, spared me. He gave me a bright ray of hope. He restored my soul by restoring Epaphroditus. The Lord is good to do that, isn't he? Just when it feels like you're at your lowest point, at your deepest hurts, he heals. 
He helps. He gives hope to keep on going. And he often does it through his work in other people's lives. As Paul said in prison, seemingly himself wasting away, and then saw Epaphroditus with his sickness also seemingly physically wasting away. Perhaps the thought crept into his mind, is this really all worth it? But as he watched Epaphroditus closely, he observed something amazing. This man wasn't pouting in his pain. He was concerned about others' pain. How does that happen? Well, Paul knew it quite personally. God was at work in this man's heart. But the outward situation was still bleak. Epaphroditus was still sick, but God was still working. And he healed this man's body too. And at his recovery, Paul praises God saying, thank you, Lord, for your abundant mercy to me. And it propels him to be merciful towards others. We read in verse 28 that with Epaphroditus restored, Paul was eager to send him back to the Philippians. Paul doesn't say, oh, great, you better now. Now you can get back to serving me. Paul could use his service. He valued his service. But he knew where Epaphroditus' heart was. He knew where the Philippians' hearts were. So he sends Epaphroditus back. That they might rejoice at seeing him. And that Paul might be less anxious about him. He's home now. And how should the Philippians receive him? With a hero's welcome. Look at verses 29 and 30. Paul says, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. A life lived for others is an honorable life. And those who live such lives deserve honor. Epaphroditus risked his life to serve Paul and in doing so serve Christ on behalf of the Philippians. He contracted an illness in doing so and had to go back home. He didn't fully complete what he set out to do. And yet his mission was not a failure. God accomplished what he meant to accomplish in and through Epaphroditus. He became a homegrown, living example of selfless, others-oriented love and service. He goes back to Philippi early, but not as someone to be criticized, but someone to be commended and copied. Would that everyone would live like Epaphroditus. Would that everyone would live like Timothy, genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. What models of that mindset have you seen in our church? What models of that mindset have you seen in your life? Shantae started our time off reflecting on this dear sister who was genuinely concerned about her welfare and how impactful that was in her life. Who are those people in your life? Maybe take some time over the next few hours today Tell them about it. If they're members in our congregation, tell them about it. If they're not members here, text them, call them, email them. It honors God to honor godly people. And not only honor them, 
by telling them how much of a good example they were, honor them most by copying their example. You yourself seek to be a model of living for others out of love for the Lord. I wonder, could, could some church historian at Temple Hills Baptist Church one day write a letter back to former members of the church about dear Nicole's faithful service to the saints. Dear Jane's committed and selfless service to this body. What's keeping you from having your name inserted where Timothy and Epaphroditus is? Nothing. You have the same Jesus as they had. You have the same spirit as they had. You have the same opportunities as they had. So saints live as they did. Not for yourself, but genuinely seeking the well-being of others. May the Lord help us in that effort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your care for us. We pray that we would model the humble, selfless service that Jesus has shown coming, dying for us, laying down our lives for others. Lord, let us not just talk about it. Help us to be about this. Fill us with your spirit. By your help, we might be the kind of men and women who selflessly love and serve our brothers and sisters. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.